Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hello and welcome everyone. My name's Maria Zagala. I'm the Associate Curator of Prints, Drawings and Photographs here at the Art Gallery and also the Curator of the Collection Display Antarctica, Five Responses from the Collection. And that exhibition is on in Gallery 8 and runs um, until the 26th of April. The exhibition includes the work of Frank Hurley, Sidney Nolan, B. Maddock, Narelle Jubilin and Ian North uh, from the collection and also a work on loan, a sound piece by Philip Samartsis, a Melbourne-based artist. I'm really delighted today to uh, invite and introduce Dr. Alessandro Antonello here to give a lecture uh, for our lunchtime talk uh, on uh, Antarctica. And Alessandro is a senior research fellow in history at Flinders University, which he joined in January 2020. He works on the environmental and international histories of Antarctica and the world's oceans in the 20th and 21st centuries. In addition to many scholarly articles, his first published book, The Greening of Antarctica, Assembling an International Environment, was published by Oxford University Press in 2019 and is a study of environmental developments within the Antarctic Treaty System between 1959 and 1980. He received his PhD in history from the Australian National University and has previously held academic positions at the University of Oregon in the USA and the University of Melbourne. He travelled to the Antarctic Peninsula in early 2020 when COVID-19 was still being called a novel coronavirus and had not yet officially spread beyond China and he was an observer aboard a large tourist ship on behalf of the International Association of Antarctic Tour Operators. Please welcome Professor Antonello. Thanks so much, Maria, and thank you for the promotion to Professor. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here at the Art Gallery to talk about uh, the exhibition, which I hope perhaps you've already seen or will immediately go up to see after this. And let me begin by acknowledging that we're on Ghana land, and I'd like to acknowledge Ghana elders too. So in this short talk today, I want to put the artists and their works in the exhibition into the larger context of their moment. I hope that I'll be able to convey just a few of the changes that Antarctica has seen across the 20th century focusing on some geographic, scientific, and environmental elements of Antarctica's human history. To approach Antarctica, I'm going to take four slices, the years in which Frank Hurley, Sidney Nolan, B. Maddock, and Ian North went to Antarctica. So 1912, 1964, 1987, and 2012. Noting quickly that Philip Samartsis, the sound artist in the exhibition, went to Antarctica in 2009 and 2015. Only one of these years is generally remembered as a truly historical banner year in Antarctica, that is 1912, for it was at the start of that year that Robert Scott died on his way back from the South Pole, having been, uh, having been narrowly beaten by the Norwegian Royal Amundsen, who arrived at the South Pole in late 1911. But the other years still have a good deal of meaning to them. Uh, so the stories, events and ideas I will talk about today were the structures in which these artists thought about or could have thought about 
Antarctica. What could they have seen in Antarctica? How could they have seen Antarctica? How might they have thought about Antarctica? What are they showing us? And what are they not showing us from Antarctica? So to begin in 1912, When the Australian photographer Frank Hurley stepped onto Antarctica in 1912, um, having departed Australia in 1911, it was only 16 years earlier that the first person, the first human, had actually set foot on the continent. And it was only in 1899 that humans had spent their first winter in Antarctica. Hurley would go on to become one of the two most important photographers um, of Antarctica in the first half of the 20th century. The other was the British photographer Herbert Ponting, who went with Robert Scott. In 1912, Hurley was on Douglas Mawson's Australasian Antarctic expedition, and Hurley would return to the Antarctic or sub-Antarctic four times, um, in 1914 with Ernest Shackleton, in 1917 to South Georgia, and twice between 1929 and 1931, again with Douglas Mawson. When Hurley went to Antarctica in, 1911, um, in 1912, he had already built himself a modest but successful career as a photographer in Sydney. For example, his photo postcards were selling very well at the time. Born in 1885, in fact, his whole world at that stage was Sydney and the Blue Mountains, as he had never travelled anywhere else. Hurley came to Mawson's attention through the great University of Sydney geologist Edgeworth David. Uh, who had been to Antarctica with Ernest Shackleton at the end of the first decade of the century. And so it was that Mawson chose Hurley to be the photographer and the cinematographer for the ex expedition. And Mawson sent uh, Hurley off to get cinematographic training um, from the Gaumont Film Company at the time. So why was Mawson with Hurley and a whole crew of men going to Antarctica? The essence of the story here is that Antarctica in 1912 was mostly a blank space on the map. The first two decades of the 20th century are often called the heroic era of Antarctic exploration, since the great names of Antarctic history are associated with that time, and including important geographic firsts, like the first achievement of the geographic South Pole, or the first achievement of the um, South Magnetic Pole, which Mawson and Edgeworth David had um, uh, achieved in 1909. And you'll probably recognise some of the names. Royal Amundsen, Robert Scott and Ernest Shackleton from Britain, the Australian Mawson. But there are also other important names we, can't we shouldn't forget. Um, the Germans, Erich von Drygalski and Wilhelm Filchner, the Swede, Otto von Nordenschold, and the Japanese, Nobo Shirasi. The rush to Antarctica in these years was partly a result of the fact that it seemed like the great, last great effort in geographical discovery by humans. In 1895, the Sixth International Geographical Congress in London declared, quote, that the exploration over the Antarctic regions is the greatest piece of geographical exploration still to be undertaken. If the 19th century was about pushing into the high Arctic, then the early 20th century was about pushing into the far south. It was mainly the leading European imperial powers, with a couple of others, who pushed into the south, notably the British Empire, which of course included Australia and New Zealand at the time. Just to sort of demonstrate this kind of blankness of Antarctica, this um, 
a selection uh, section from a map from 1886 published in Edinburgh by John Bartholomew and Sons. Um, you can see the sort of emptiness depicted on the map and the sort of red parts of the coastline that were known at the time. This, in fact, is an excerpt from the first map that probably, this is probably the first use of the word Antarctica for the continent itself. Until this time, it was generally called Antarctic regions on maps. Another example from the late, I think, 1898, again, the sort of big blob of brown, unknown brown in the middle of that map, suggesting really what was yet to be discovered and yet to be known about Antarctica. Uh, similarly, this map shows a few of the tracks of some of the expeditions I've mentioned. Filchner on the top left, uh, Mawson's AAE on the bottom right, and Amundsen um, in the Ross Sea at the bottom there. The scientific work of this time was fairly basic, with some concentration on magnetism, meteorology and geology. It was really about gaining the first basic data about the Antarctic environment. You, uh, I haven't mentioned glaciology because um, despite being a continent covered in ice, the modern discipline of glaciology, which is the study of ice and ice sheets and glaciers, wasn't really in existence in the early 20th century. But the great effort was really geographic and cartographic, filling in as many details on this map as accurately as possible. It's worth remembering that this was not only a scientific quest in the early 20th century, but a commercial quest too. In the 1890s, there had been a bit of searching for whales on behalf of the whaling industry. And this started in Antarctica in 1904 from the island of South Georgia, here in the South Atlantic. Um, Hurley would be exposed to the whaling industry when he went to South Georgia in 1917. Mawson's Australasian Antarctic expedition was based at Commonwealth Bay, arriving there at the start of 1912. They spent the first winter there, uh, and in late 1912, uh, there was a program of sledging with three main teams. Um, just to quickly, the photograph on the left, I think, is the raising of the flag when the, um, the winter quarters, the huts, were finished, and on the right, sort of a cutaway of um, the interior of the Mawson's huts at Commonwealth Bay. For those who have recently been to Hobart, you can visit a sort of reconstruction of this at the waterfront in Hobart, which is wonderful. So uh, in late 1912 and early 1913, there were three sledging expeditions to sort of explore the territory more. Mawson's sledge is the most remembered at this time because um, tragically he lost two companions on that journey, Belgrave Ninnis and Xavier Mertz, and he in fact barely survived. Hurley was on the team searching again for the South Magnetic Pole. Um, a sledge uh, there on the right, they pulled themselves only with their human energy. I always like the image on the left because even though it's a bit sad that there are some unceremoniously stuffed dead penguins in that box, I do find it slightly humorous. Um, and I do believe that is Hurley in the middle collecting said penguins with his um, crewmates. So they're pulling these uh, sledges across, sometimes easy but often very difficult ice. Hurley returned to Australia in February 1913, but of course would be back in Antarctica very soon thereafter, not just to pick up Mawson, but then the next year uh, to join Shackleton on another great quest, which was to cross the entire Antarctic continent. Um, that trip famously ended with the crushing of the Endurance, the ship in ice, and its sinking to the bottom of the Weddell Sea. It is clear that Hurley really embodied a larger culture of exploration and adventure at this time, 
one which really held up the role of the heroic or adventurous individual going into the world, especially on behalf of empire. This is one of the more famous images uh, Hurley took at um, Commonwealth Bay, known as the home of the blizzard because they chose a spot where the wind is incredibly, <laughs> just unrelentingly um, vicious. This is in the exhibition. It's worth remembering that in 1912, there were vanishingly few photographs or readily available images of Antarctica. There were definitely a few drawings and engravings in print through the 19th century, but these were very few. There were certainly more images of the Arctic circulating, but it's still not clear to me what Hurley may have seen of Arctic imagery at the time. Hurley, for example, did not see Herbert Ponting's very famous and important photographs uh, until Hurley returned from Shackleton's, not just Mawson's, but Shackleton's expedition. So Hurley's photographs therefore entered a relatively sparse visual field. And I think it's interesting to compare to Ponting. Um, I should have put a few more Pont Ponting photographs up, but Ponting's, I think, are a bit more hum humane in a sense. I think they try to capture the interior life of Scott's expeditioners at the start of that decade. Whereas I think Hurley can be a bit, can concentrate quite a lot on the landscape and sort of more abstract heroic figures. The last point to make about Hurley is that the photographs were not simply exhibited in normal exhibitions or they, and they weren't simply printed in the books that did come out of the expedition. They were presented in these things that Robert Dixon, the scholar, calls synchronised lecture entertainments. So he would present photographs, um, you know, people would come to an event like this, present photographs, he would present moving images, people would lecture, not just Hurley, but perhaps people from the expedition. There would be music, sometimes he would bring artifacts too, people could buy the images or the books. So the kind of, I mean, lecture is definitely a boring word for them, but you know, there were these sort of, they were events and often covered in great detail in newspapers wherever um, the synchronized media entertainments went. Um, the other, just to finish this section on Hurley, I mean, this is the, a couple of the absolute iconic images of Antarctica, uh, the endurance with Shackleton that Hurley took, one during the long summer and one very famously he lit up the ship um, with lights in the middle of the winter. So I think Hurley, especially with Ponting, really sets the kind of way people see Antarctica at the start of the 20th century and really affects it going along. Our next slice of time in 1964. In January 1964, the great Australian artist Sidney Nolan and his friend, the um, notable expatriate Australian author Alan Moorhead, visited Antarctica for eight days. They flew from Christchurch, New Zealand, to the American McMurdo Station in the Ross Sea as guests of the American Antarctic program. At McMurdo, at the South Pole, and at Bird Station in West Antarctica, Nolan recorded his vision in watercolour and postcards, um, and with some photographs. These were studies for the eventually 68 major paintings which followed. He completed the first few in April, April of that year, um, and then completed the remainder in his studio in London um, in August and September. It's interesting to note that Nolan was also painting his Burke and Will series at this time, so I think exploration and deserts, you know, in his visual frame of reference at that very moment. Antarctica in the 1960s was dramatically different from 1962. I happened to be in Canberra a few weeks ago doing some research, and I thought I'd get out his diaries from the National Library. Um, everyone loves, uh, you know, an artefact from the artist. The one, the one on the left is a very handsomely bound red leather number from. Smithson's of Bond Street in London. The other is, his more, I think, his more usual diary. And here uh, you can see some of his descriptions, 
um, from his visit. Most notably, I like the one on the left in the middle, millions of penguins reminded of Gallipoli. Um, but you can see some notes on the bottom right there, sort of him observing um, helmets and boots, um, bearded, tattooed man. Um, remembering that the 1950s and 60s, when you research Antarctic history, you realise the 1950s and 60s, having a beard was very unusual. And therefore, Antarctic explorers, who generally had beards, were sort of marked out by their physical appearance. They're often, um, Philip Law, a very famous Australian Antarctic explorer of the time, was often called the bearded Philip Law in the media. So Antarctica in the early 1960s was dramatically different, as you might imagine. In the intervening decades, scientific research and exploration had exchanged manhauled sledges and dogs for impressive machines. You know, Nolan flew to Antarctica and around Antarctica. You know, dramatically different experience. Not only that, but um, Nolan saw a nuclear reactor at McMurdo Station. Um, that picture on the left is McMurdo in 1964, um, beneath Mount Erebus on, uh, on Ross Island. It sort of has a um, frontier mining town look. So he saw a nuclear reactor in Antarctica, which was given the affectionate nickname Nukipu, uh, which powered the station for 20 years and has subsequently been removed, removed decades ago. Um, I bring this up because I think it's worth noting the kind of slightly old-fashioned way that uh, Nolan presents Antarctica. I think his landscapes are a very distinct vision, highly textured, and I think still remain, what were at the time and remain a very distinct vision of Antarctica, but one can, I think, sense in his depiction of the explorers, a, 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 dare I say, a conservative or old-fashioned vision of Robert Scott or of Mawson at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, the image on the bottom left, I think, is very redolent of uh, a very famous photograph by Hurley, with sort of the iced-up vision uh, visage of, a, of an explorer. And Narelle Jubelin's work in the exhibition also references that. Um, but it's also worth remembering that Scott and Shackleton left their huts in Antarctica uh, you know, undestroyed, un undemolished, and those huts are actually literally just around the corner from McMurdo Station. So Moorhead and Nolan visited the, um, the, the historic huts as well, so he sort of had that relationship with history and the present. The other major change in the intervening decades uh, was geopolitical. In those decades, so the Antarctica that Nolan visited had been claimed as sovereign territory by seven nations. Um, between 1908 and 1939, uh, these countries, uh, Britain, Chile, Argentina, Norway, Australia, France and New Zealand, had laid territorial claim to most of the continent. Um, but these were very unstable. Most countries did not and certainly do not recognise these territorial, territorial claims. And many thought that it was in fact impossible to claim territory in, in, in the Antarctic. There were even some tensions in the post-Second World War era between Britain, Argentina and Chile, who you can see their claims overlap. There was the Cold War as well, the United States and the Soviet Union competing against each other for some level of control and domination of the Earth. But there were positive developments as well, especially around scientific internationalism. Uh, in the late 1950s, there was a major international effort called the International Geophysical Year to study the, uh, all aspects of the Earth's geophysics, especially in Antarctica. So this mix, and this really brought thousands of scientists to Antarctica for the first time. It, was sort of the, it really was the beginning of our modern era of Antarctic science. The mix of these tensions and in, you know, aspirational internationalism led to this a treaty called the Antarctic Treaty, signed in 1959. 
um, signed by 12 countries, the seven claimants, the US and the Soviet Union, plus Belgium, Japan, and South Africa. They signed the treaties to state that peaceful scientific research were the, was the privileged activity for Antarctica and that they should cooperate to gain knowledge about Antarctica. To achieve this, the seven claimant states had to engage in some novel legal manoeuvres to set aside or to freeze their claims for the duration of the treaty so that the scientific work could go on. So this is the Antarctica that Nolan visited in 1964, one that was now permanently occupied by very advanced scientific work, scientists from many nations, and a continent where there was an international treaty to govern it. So we jump forward again to 1987. It was in this year that the Tasmanian artist B. Maddock journeyed to Antarctica as the official guest of the Australian Antarctic Division. And I think this counts as perhaps the first time the modern Australian Antarctic program officially sent artists to sort of interpret the continent and the work going on there. She was joined by two other Australians, um, Jan Senbergs and John Caldwell. They voyaged south on the MV Iceberg. Sorry, her works don't really come up so well on PowerPoint, so it's absolutely you must see it um, in, the, in the gallery. Uh, they voyaged south on the MV Iceberg, a ship uh, that Australia used throughout the 1980s, so they could, they really had to carry, Australia had to carry a lot of rebuilding materials to rebuild and renovate uh, the Australian stations in the 1980s. Their first stop was Heard Island, an Australian Antarctic, uh, island territory in the Southern Ocean. And in fact, here, very sadly, that Maddox suffered a very serious knee injury whilst ashore. Um, immortalised in a, a painting by Senbergs of, um, of Maddox being put back onto the ship, uh, having suffered a very significant knee injury, which really immobilised her for the rest of the trip. After Heard Island, they voyaged um, to the continent, especially to Davis and Mawson stations. It's interesting how Maddox says that, quote, I had absolutely no concept of the southern continent and had never had the least desire to travel there. I hesitated in my response to the invitation but she went anyway. The voyage was planned to be 40 days, you know, and I, I hope we all recognise the cultural resonances of 40 days, Christ's days in the wilderness. Um, and one uh, and on display is Maddox's eventual work, 40 pages from Antarctica. It's interesting to note that Maddox reflects that she had no concept of the southern continent. I have no doubt Maddox was attentive to the news, but um, the 1980s were really a rich and quite contested decade of Antarctic history. After the signing of the Antarctic Treaty in 1959, the treaty work had become increasingly focused on environment and resources, not simply on science. The treaty parties turned their regime um, to really focus on the environment. Um, they worked on some conservation agreements in the 1960s, and in the 1970s, they really focused on two big resource issues, fish and minerals. The first one on fish, um, they sorted out by 1980 and they negotiated a new treaty to govern fisheries and fisheries science in the Southern Ocean, especially around krill. Um, there was a worry in the 1970s that krill might be overexploited and everything in Antarctica eats krill. So if you overexploit krill, you can potentially have effects on the whole environment. The second issue was around mining and far more contentious than fishing. Partly because it brought up the old territorial issue. Mining is a lucrative business, so it brings in a lot of money for commercial operators and in taxes for states. 
The other contention was environmental. Should Antarctica even be mined or drilled? And so this issue was seriously negotiated in the 1980s. When Maddock went in 1987, the treaty parties were on the verge of signing a convention that would allow mining in Antarctica, but within you know, a very strict environmental and policy framework. But significant actors were pr protesting against this very, very vigorously, like Greenpeace. Um, Greenpeace, they not only um, you know, dressed up as penguins and protested outside diplomatic negotiations, they even sent an expedition to Antarctica and set up a base just around the corner from McMurdo Station. As I said, the, the treaty parties did sign this mining agreement in 1988, but that wasn't the end of the matter by any stretch of the imagination. Um, despite having participated and signed the, tr the convention, Australia and France, under the leadership of Bob Hawke and Michel Rocard, the respective prime ministers, decided actually they would reject. They would not support the convention despite having signed it, and they would push for a complete ban on mining. Not merely coincidentally, both were up for massive re-election, you know, important election re-election campaigns at the same time, in which environmental issues are very significant. And so they did push uh, for an environmental treaty. I, I, I like to include the image on the bottom right because Jacques Cousteau was very prominent, the, you know, the very famous underwater uh, uh, naturalist, uh, was very prominent in the campaign against mining. And even in 1989, took a group of children, one from every continent, to reclaim Antarctica. Um, which is, a, it's, a, it's, I believe, the, I think the documentary is called Lilliput in Antarctica. So eventually, mining was banned in Antarctica. And so I just thought it's important to see Maddock in this moment in which environmental concerns were really important for Antarctica, and that Maddock was going really at, at an inflection point, um, thinking about how to protect and preserve Antarctica. Our final slice of time is 2012, and we journey to Antarctica with the artist, curator, and writer Ian North, uh, who was on a voyage to commemorate the centenary of Douglas Mawson's Australasian Antarctic expedition. Uh, North offers us a few visions of the Antarctic and the Southern Ocean, turbulent and mighty in their materiality, but also imbued and inflected by history. While I think in these um, images especially, I think North calls attention to the First World War, 1915, not 2015, um, which, you know, in a really interesting way, the, the First World War disrupted the kind of older ideas of heroism. It was kind of Scott you know, Robert Scott, who had died in Antarctica for the great heroic quest to find the South Pole, rapidly went out of public memory as millions of young men were dying on behalf of their countries on the fronts of the war. So one of my concluding points, I want to draw on this to think about how the different ways in which history weighs upon the present and perhaps onto the future Antarctic. The 21st century is one fundamentally characterised by climate change. The heating up of the earth because of human carbon emissions has now been happening for decades and decades. And the emissions themselves have been accumulating since the early 19th century, but most, mostly since the middle of the 20th century. Um, this is just a representation of the heating, the massive heating from 1957 to 20, 2006, really in West Antarctica and the Antarctic Peninsula. The week after I visited the Antarctic Peninsula last year, there were record temperatures of 18 degrees Celsius and 20 degrees Celsius. So heat means melting. 
and oh, sorry, this, this um, satellite image is from one of the islands near um, those record temperature. You can see the melting of the ice on top. That kind of melt where water accumulates on ice sheets in Antarctica is extraordinarily rare. So it's very, it's very recent. So heat means melting, and the Antarctic ice sheet is steadily losing mass. As I mentioned, the Antarctic Peninsula has been warming the most. But what worries glaciologists uh, most is the West Antarctic ice sheet. And I'll just explain this graph um, from, uh, I think, the second to last IPCC report. On the left-hand axis is the gigatons of ice loss cumulatively. And the right axis is, uh, SLE means, um, uh, means sea level, or sea level equivalent rise. And that Antarctica up to 2012 had contributed probably six millimetres of uh, global sea level rise. But, there's always a but, which is very frightening. What currently uh, worries glaciologists most is this area of Antarctica, the West Antarctic Ice Sheet, which is, it's a marine grounded ice sheet, which means that, that the ice sheet, ice sheets sort of rest on bedrock, continental bedrock. And a marine grounded one means that that connection between rock and ice is below sea level, which means that um, rising ocean temperatures, not atmospheric, ocean temperatures can uh, undermine the uh, ice sheet from below. And if you undermine that from below, you can cause a much more quick collapse or fracturing of the ice sheet, which speeds up um, the, ice, uh, the ice sheet collapse. Most of East Antarctica is not marine grounded, but there are areas here, I hope I'm pointing at the, quite the right area, the Denman Glacier around here is marine grounded, so they're also worried about this. The West Antarctic Ice Sheet contains between three and six metres of sea level rise. The East Antarctic Ice Sheet contains upwards of 60 metres of sea level rise. So this is why I think it's important to think about not just history as the past, but how we will weigh upon the future. Because actually, even if we rapidly decarbonise now, we have set certain things in train. My final point is to reflect that Ian North and the centenary voyage of 2012 also brings forward another important aspect of contemporary Antarctica, which is tourism or visiting. I think it's important to emphasise, perhaps, that we are all visitors, or I hope perhaps some of you have visited Antarctica, but if you do, remember that we are all visitors to Antarctica. If Antarctica used to be the preserve of scientists or whalers or heroic explorers, it is now, by sheer numerical numbers, the province of tourists. People now pay a great deal of money to go to Antarctica, usually by ship, but an increasing number are flying there directly, not just over, landing on Antarctica. In the 2019-20 season, those are the summer of 2019-20, when I visited, there were over 70,000 tourists going to Antarctica. Now, that is, a, that is an infinitesimal amount of global tourism. You know, tens of millions of people travel a year. But most of those 70,000 visit the same dozen spots in the Antarctic Peninsula. So there's an incredible amount of potential environmental impact. So of those 70,000, about 50,000 went on small ships, generally leaving from the south of Argentina in a city called Ushuaia, and they do visit and step on certain parts of Antarctica, generally in that northernmost tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, which is very close to South America. 
The other 20,000 or so, including me, went on large ships which are not allowed to land passengers in Antarctica. Um, if, so if the ship is over 500, you're, you're not allowed to let your passengers go onshore. The first explicitly tourist ship to visit Antarctica was 1966, um, led by an all-round character and tourism entrepreneur called Lars-Erik Lindblad. Um, he sold his company to National Geographic, which still um, runs those tours. And he really pioneered the industry um, and was its major actor for a decade or so. For example, he, he introduced the idea that tourists were explorers. He didn't call them tourists or passengers or guests he, or travellers, he called them explorers. And in fact, today, many of the companies still use the word expedition tour touring rather than cruises. The Antarctic tourism industry really started to expand from the late 1980s, and the early 90s was quite a propitious time for tour operators because with the collapse of the Soviet Union, there were a lot of um, ships that could be chartered um, that were used in the, in the Arctic to be used in the, in the Southern Hemisphere, in the South Polar Seas. In 1994, a group of tour operators formed their own body called IATO, the International Association of Antarctic Tour Operators, partly to coordinate their efforts. So they try and work together to make sure that people have a relatively good experience of Antarctica, um, but around issues like safety as well. And this was in the Madrid Protocol Age, which I've mentioned, the, you know, protecting the Antarctic environment at all costs. And I share a few clips um, towards the end now of this little video that IATO shows all passengers who go to Antarctica to encourage them to think about their safety and environmental protection. Remember to stop often and reflect on the beauty around you. Respecting and appreciating your surrounds is the easiest way to ensure this experience lasts for you and all those who come after you. And I thought, basically to end, it's always good to have a few gratuitous shots one took oneself in Antarctica. <laughs> Um, when I went at the start of last year, it was, uh, the weather was not great, but it was amazing to see the sort of brooding grey uh, gray and whites of Antarctica. This is King George Island in the South Shetland Islands. Some ice in Wilhelmina Bay, and a bit of sun peeking through as we go southwest through the Gurlash Strait, um, looking back over the Transantarctic Mountains on the peninsula. So we have reached the present. And over the past 100 years or so, Antarctica has been transformed from a blank spot on the maps to a region governed through an environmental treaty, uh, sorry, through an international treaty to protect its environment and to encourage free and open scientific research. If in 1912, the Antarctic environment was truly overwhelming on humans, today, 2012, uh, today in 2012, where I ended the lecture, and into the future, I think we really need to reflect on how we as humanity are affecting Antarctica. And so I encourage you, go and see the exhibition. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Sandro, um, for a terrific lecture. And also thank you for... Um, following the exhibition so closely in time and giving us an insight um, into what the artists um, were seeing and how their, their view of it might have been framed. Um, we've got time just for a couple of questions. Are there any questions from the floor before um, we close for today? Ah, so I wasn't technically researching there. I was an observer on behalf of the organisation IARTO. 
So given my background of research, IATO has a policy that every new company that goes to Antarctica, every new ship that goes to Antarctica, and every three years, the company needs to be observed that it's, you know, with a, a large checklist, which I had, to make sure that it's abiding by the, the, the regulation that the organisation imposes upon its own members. So, for example, not that I was able exactly to see this, but, you know, you can't dump waste in Antarctica. You can't... Um, in, a lot of cruise ships incinerate waste on board, so you can't incinerate your waste whilst you're in Antarctica. Um, I know they didn't do that because... Um, uh, because they were letting the rubbish pile up below decks. Things like um, people aren't allowed to fly drones if they're members of this organisation. So not that I saw any drones, but no drones were flown. Um, uh, other things as well, like uh, most of these operators have very rich cultural and historic and scientific lecturers and activities on board. So, you know, I was passing judgment on my colleagues about the quality of their lectures, um, which are very good. Yeah, so th th those were the tasks I was, uh, you know, so meeting with the bridge crew to say, you know, if someone falls overboard, you know, what are your plans? Um, you know, inspecting all of those kinds of things. So, yes. Uh, but I did say, I mean, I'll use that as a segue to say that w I'm trying to write a biography of a, uh, an American scientist, a krill biologist, who was um, a very prominent woman at the time in the 1960s and 70s, and she was the first woman to do several things in Antarctica. And so we went past um, the island where she worked, Anvers Island, where the US base Palmer Station is. And so I did, I did a bit of sneaky research and saw the environment in which um, Mary Alice McWinney was doing her krill research. Well, um, thank you very much, Alessandro, and I hope that you get a chance to have a look at the exhibition before it closes. Thank you. Thank you.